Defining terms is really important. If I were to ask you the question, what is politics? What would you say? Chaos. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we want him in charge of that class. <laughs> kind of complicated, isn't it? But if we don't have a definition, what do we work from? So let me suggest this. Politics is the process of determining the ethical standard by which social norms will be established and judged. It's quite a different approach, isn't it? It's the ethical standard. Now, when I talk to my state representatives about politics, even those that are professing Christians, they always tell me it's about power. That's what they say. But the reality is they just told me what their ethic was. Right? Power, the Scripture says, belongeth unto God. And if your ethical standard is power, guess what you want to be? God. So if we are able to take and create definitions that we can work from, what that does is it allows us to create clarity in what we're doing and why we're doing it. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> last year I did a, a short segment on the issue of trust and what trust is, and how it plays out, and how you deal with it. And Daniel, uh, I got probably more feedback on that point than on any other point. That has been true for 27 years. I have, uh, in my consulting career, I have restructured entire companies on the basis of what we're going to go through in the next few minutes. It is the fundamental operation of each of my companies. It's the fundamental basis of our investment strategies. When I was 35 years old, uh, I had kind of like my crisis year. I'd been a Christian for 18 years. But I kept having some of the same problems, and these, these same problems, by then I was getting enough maturity about me that I realized that if the same problem kept cropping up over and over again, it probably wasn't other people, right? And, and so I began to hone in on the culprit, which was not the most comfortable position in the world to be in. And, and I realized, Lord, I don't understand trust. Now, if you are like I was prior to that year in my life, I went to a lot of different sources to get my definitions. I no longer do that. If I want to define what politics is, I go to the Scriptures. If I want to define what trust is, I go to the Scriptures. If I want to define what is integrity, what is honor, uh, what is faithfulness, I go to the Scriptures. Because it's only inside the Scriptures that we're going to find reality. You can get a lot of good definitions in other places and so forth. But what we want is God's thoughts on the matter. 
Because God says to all of mankind, your thoughts are not my thoughts and your ways are not my ways. And the Lord even says, I know your thoughts for they even come to your mind. And there's this entire thing in the scriptures uh, about how to think. I'd never thought about that uh, before the Lord began to open up these avenues of, of how to consider these things. So, in our uh, definition of trust, I told, uh, shared with you young men who are about to get married that I think this is the most fundamental character quality you can take into your marriage. I think you'll see why. But we're going to define trust, but before we do, over to the right, I have a little statement here that says the force of law is either compelled by conscience or it is compelled by coercion and violence. Now my question is, is this true of God's law? It is, isn't it? We either come to a loving appreciation and obedience to God's law by conscience, because if we don't come to it by conscience, it means that we are rebels against it, right? What does God do for rebels? He exercises coercion and violence against rebels. Scriptures are full of it. Okay? Now, did you know that that is not isolated to God and His law? In our culture, we have a revolution going on, don't we? <clears throat> An ethical revolution. And number one, what they want is for you to submit your conscience to this ethical revolution. If you do not submit your conscience to the ethical revolution, what happens next? Coercion and violence. Right? This is what's happening to our brothers and sisters in China. If you're familiar with the early reign church, they initially tried to, by the, the different mechanisms, to get them to be willing to submit their ethical standards by conscience. To explain to them what was right, and, and y'all probably saw the declaration where they have to rewrite the Bible now, that uh, expressly uh, reflects the ethical standards of the communist eschatology. Right? And since they couldn't get it by conscience, what did they then do? They went to coercion and violence. This is an attribute of law, all law. Daddy, you have a child in your household and you give instructions. And What do you want him to do? You want him to be compelled by his conscience because that's right and good, right? If you don't get that, what happens? Yeah, is it called coercion and violence? <laughs> Depends on who's defining violence on the last part, right? <laughs> okay, it is an attribute of law. This is the way law works. This is important in our culture to understand that as we're going through a cultural revolution, this is playing out in our day. And if we can understand ourselves in the concept, law's not going to change in the sense of the operations of law. 
But when you have a change of law, what that means is you've had a change of sovereignty because law is the expression of sovereignty. So <clears throat> I bring this up because we're going to come back to this time and again, this particular point, uh, time and again. This is true in business. Now, if you, if you have employees and the employee is not following the routine, uh, you, 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 you come in, you sit down with them, right? And you explain to them how it works and so on and so forth. And what you want is, is for them to consciously grasp the principles and the process that you want to use, right? And if they don't do that consciously, what happens? Oh, coercion. Uh, violence in that environment is probably not that good a thing, but uh, you, you see the point. It doesn't change from law to law. The principle stays the same. That's why the law itself is such a vital component in my personal life, my family life, my social circles, my community, and my nation. Because whatever law is enshrined, that will be the mechanism. Okay? So the character of trust the lifestyle of trust and the definition of trust. I would dare say each of you here have had this experience, and some of you who were here last year, you're going to hear me repeat some things, but I'm going to expand on it this year in terms of application because this is so important. None of you will get away from this in your life. Okay. Now, the question is, what do you do with it? That, that will be the question. You're not going to get away from it. It's kind of like breathing. Once you stop, eh, the rest of it's not that important. Okay. <clears throat> so you're not going to get away from trust. But what I realized is that I did not have a working definition of trust. A, a definition I could apply over and over and over again. And because I didn't have a working definition, I was constantly defining that term falsely. And then I, I had uh, what, what I call getting taken advantage of. Uh, Y'all probably haven't had that happen to you, but uh, I did. And it was over and over and over again. And of course, the problem was is that I always thought it was other people's fault. Nothing could have been further from the truth. You know, if you put your finger under a falling hammer, the fault is not the hammer. Well, that's what I kept doing. Right? Most of you have had this happen to you. Here's how we normally do relationships. As Christians, we're even worse. Of all people who should be able to model this in a culture, we're generally worse. And so we meet somebody... And we give them our trust, which we haven't yet defined. And then they do what we call violating our trust, and then we get upset with them for doing it. Right? Any of you ever had that happen to you? You know, it's amazing how many of these things just seem to be common to being alive, isn't it? Right? So, 
That's not what happened. What happened was this, and we're going to go into the Scriptures to define our terms. What happened was this. I met someone and I gave them my trust for free. They figured out the value and treated it as cheaply as I gave it away. And then I got upset with them because they were the only ones who understood the value of the equation. And the whole problem stemmed from me. So we went into the scriptures and I said, Lord, I need to understand what trust is. What is trust? And so we came up with a working definition. And that working definition is this. Trust is future expectations based on past performance. Future expectations based on past performance. Well, that that raises some obvious questions. First of all, allow me to demonstrate the accuracy of the definition. In Luke chapter 16, the Lord Jesus Christ said this, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in least is unjust also in much. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the first thing that jumps off that verse to you, what would you say? I mean, the very first thing. You would have to violate a social taboo of our day because you have to make a judgment call, don't you? What's the judgment you have to make? Yeah, have they been faithful or have they not been faithful? Because only in that judgment can you make future expectations. Now, so let me ask this question. Is he telling me this because he's trying to educate me about how to be wise in living my life? Yeah. Let's go further. If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? And so here we have this this statement by the Lord Jesus Christ that in a judgment, if a man is faithful in little things, the expectation is, is that he will be faithful in much, but that requires something of us, doesn't it? It requires us to know. Now, I always like to ask them these, these questions because it gets past the assumptions. I've been married for 42 years. Should my wife trust me just because she's married to me? No. In the Scriptures, the only grounds for trusting someone is that they have proven themselves to be trustworthy. That's it. Okay. Should I trust my wife just because I'm married to her? 
No. So we, we have to have these discussions, my wife and I, and I, um, to my wife, uh, how am I doing on the trust meter? And if you're going to ask the question, be prepared for the answer. Okay? So, future expectations based on past performance. Now, <clears throat> reading a little further uh, there where the Lord is dealing with this, He said, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is the biggest problem I see with pornography. Right here. Because you cannot serve what? Two masters. Either you will love the one and hate the other. But the other thing is, is that it creates instability in the mind and in the life. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said unto them, You are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. And so we take this definition future expectations based on past performance, and we start applying it. What happens if I meet someone that I have no past performance with? I can go back to the rut I've been doing, right? And give them my trust for free. Do you think that that's going to be any different than it has been historically? No, it's an invitation not to be taken advantage of, but to be demonstrated to be a fool. There are 17, as far as I've been able to find, there are 17 characteristics of a fool. That's one of them. God either gives or withholds evidence to you in order to try whether or not you and I are going to apply God's Word to the specifics of the moment. Now, if I just meet someone, obviously God has withheld from me the history, right? And so i got to be comfortable having these conversations. And I'm going to share with you some conversations as we go forward that have to be had within the context of even our Christian brotherhood. It's essential that it be so. And we have to have these conversations. In Luke uh, chapter 19 and verse 17, uh, we, we find this, this story. I'm going to go back up to 12. And he said, therefore, he said, therefore, this is the Lord Jesus Christ talking. I want to show you how the Lord applies this same principle himself. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and returned. He called ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy to I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a messenger after saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, 
what happens? Have thou authority over ten cities. His future expectation was based upon what? Past performance. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. Did he have evidence in front of him in order to make this judgment? He did, didn't he? Okay. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You take up uh, that, yet thou layest not down, and you reap where you haven't sown. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth will I judge you, you wicked servant. And so here this guy was judged, because the future expectation for this guy was based on what? Past performance. Right? <clears throat> so you have these, all of these different... Uh, opportunities where the Lord Jesus Christ applied this principle over and over again, of future expectations based on past performance. And in Matthew chapter 25, uh, if you look at verse, starting with verse 14, and it's kind of the same uh, principle here, the Lord is speaking, said, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And under one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. So he's already making judgments about these guys, isn't he? Everyone according to his several ability. And I'm not going to take the time to read the story, but when you get over to verse 21, he says to the one servant, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, thou hast been faithful over a few things, I will make thee ruler over many things. Okay, again, did he have evidence in front of him? And he used that evidence to make judgments about the future. Okay. And then in verse 23, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. And again, we, the principle here is applied over and over and over again. Now, here's a principle from God's Word. The more trustworthy you are in little things, God's reward is always to increase your responsibility. Always. Okay? So, faithfulness begats responsibility. Now, this is going to be important in our next conversation because I want to demonstrate in the next one that responsibility is God's pathway to freedom. And when we are irresponsible, we create our own prisons. I can demonstrate it time and time and time again. All right, so anyway, we, we have uh, these, these principles that just keep being enunciated and that we, we have to take into account evidence. Now, when I am, uh, I'll share with you guys how this works on a very practical scale, because sometimes in our Christian faith, we get the theory, right? But we don't apply the theory. So I'm doing interviews of people who may want to go to work for my company, and I bring up the issue of trust. First thing I do is I give them a piece of paper with the word trust on it, and I ask them to write out a definition. Give me a working definition of what you expect from me in terms of trust. 
or they'll write out a definition in terms of what they expect of me. Then I'll give them another piece of paper with the word trust on it and ask them to use the same definition in terms of what I can expect of them. And it's amazing what happens. But we have this conversation where we say to the people that we're going to work with, and this is also with our business investments and so on and so forth, if, if I've never known them, we will go over this principle and I'll say, look, we do not know you. And so therefore it's very difficult for us to make future judgments about you uh, based on your past performance. This is why you do due diligence, etc. But due diligence and all that only goes so far. Right? Because papers, uh, you know, it's like numbers. You leave me long enough with a budget and I'll have that thing singing. Well, this is the same with due diligence and history. And you, you can have people that have established this wonderful testimony, and, and it can in fact be true, but you see in the Scriptures, the requirement is on me to make judgments about these things. So to say to this person, since you and I don't have a history together, Let's agree to this definition, because this is the definition we're going to use in our company, and if you're not comfortable with it, that's okay, but don't go to work here. Okay? Because here it is, future expectations based on past performance. So we don't have any past performance, so it's okay, I have to earn your trust, I get it. And as a Christian, should I be willing to earn the trust of every person that I come in contact with? Should I be offended if somebody thinks I need to earn their trust? No, in fact, what I should do is commend them for wisdom, shouldn't I? That's wise on your part. Because it was the failure to do that that got me the other issues, wasn't it? Yeah. So that's what got me there in the first place, not being wise, I was being a fool. And that's a highly uncomfortable word, uh, and particularly when it's true. So we have this conversation, and I say to them going forward, Kevin, from this day forward, I am going to be depositing in our trust meter, our trust account. But I want to establish a rapport with you that if you think I ever break your trust, come to me. I commit to you right now, I will repair it to the best of my ability. Now, he's considering going to work for me. What do you think that just did for him? Yeah, I did, didn't I? And he says either, I think I, I would like working for people like this, but I'm going to say to him, Kevin, of course, I don't know you. So at going forward, you are going to train us as to whether or not we can trust you. Now, I will tell you that my experience with Christians for the most part is that they're afraid of those conversations. Highly uncomfortable for them, and it's uncomfortable for them because we refuse to accept God's view of reality. I want to value man above what God says 
we should do. Because if we don't have God's standards between us, our relationship will deteriorate. Okay? So, uh, and, and I have this, this same issue like when we, when we interview vendors who are going to be supplying for us. We have this conversation with them. When we buy a business and we go into them, uh, to the vendors, and I will go in and I will say, okay, we bought this business, I know you know, here's what we would like to know. Could you tell me what ways that historically this company has failed to earn your trust? We want to cure that. And it's amazing the questions I get. And we have a definition that we work from. And here's our definition. And we want to cure this. And... I mean, the responses that we get are just incredible when we take this into the marketplace of ideas. And we explain to them, we understand that trust is actually based on behavior. Okay. So, <clears throat> we can't be afraid of these conversations. Now, this is also true with our children. Should... I trust my children because they're my children. Absolutely not. Do my children need to understand that? Okay, that means I got to have this conversation with them. All of my grandchildren will tell you that the one question now, you got to understand, I've been at this now for 27 years doing this. Because for the previous 35, I don't remember how I did it when I was small. Uh, but it got me in so much trouble because I kept violating this principle. And I would get mad at everybody else. And the culprit the whole time was me. And it revolutionized my business life. It revolutionized my marriage, my relationship with my kids. We had to have a conversation with the kids in the living room and talk about this very issue, and Dad had to set some things right because my kids pointed out some things like, oh, minor stuff like hypocrisies and, uh, you know, just stuff like that. <clears throat> Where Dad was holding them to one standard, but guess what they noticed? What do you think happened to Dad's trust meter with those kids? Now, they didn't say it out loud because they were concerned about the force of law. <laughs> which would have only proven their point, right? When it didn't happen by conscience and Dad did it by coercion, that's already what they were pointing out. So, my grandchildren will tell you that the most common question from their grandfather is this. Is your behavior training me to trust you or not to trust you? It is a very common discussion. Do my grandchildren need training in that as they grow up? All of us do. We need that constant reminder. I have this one particular grandson. Daniel knows him. <clears throat> I think he makes some of the most exquisite faces when he is disappointed with his father's instruction. I mean, it's expressive enough it takes over the room. 
Now, he doesn't say anything, but he doesn't need to. There's an entire language written across his countenance. And sometimes he will do this when his father's back is turned, if you can believe that. And, of course, Grandpa sees it. And I will say to him, come sit down with Grandpa. And he'll come walking over. He knows the conversation that's coming. <laughs> right? But my question is this. Is it important for him to understand that whether his dad ever sees him or not is not the object? The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth seeing the good and the evil. I want my grandson to live a life open before God. So here's the question. When your dad turns his back, can he trust you to honor God in how you respond to him? It's a great question. So we have these conversations and I over and over and over again. So <clears throat> I want to show, I want to use some demonstrations. In your home, guys, I'm going to, to do a quick diversion here for you guys that are going to get married and show you how important this is. Now, when you're, you're preparing to get married and you get married, the first part is pretty good. I mean, like, outstanding. Okay? <laughs> and then reality kicks in. And I don't mean that in a bad way. God intended... I mean, in the Scriptures, God protected the first year of marriage. Right? And why? That you may cheer up your wife. She would get used to your company and you being around and you couldn't do military service. What a wonderful way to structure a social order. And these other demands could not be made. You had to be prepared because even your business activities had to be limited during that first year of marriage. So that you could give this tremendous amount of attention to your new bride. And so, in the scriptures, there's this thing we do called the Proverbs 31 man. Now, most of the time when you hear Proverbs 31, what do you think of? The woman. But in Proverbs 31, the man is mentioned three times. And in verse 11, it says, The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her that he should have no need for spoil. Now, if you know anything about building trust, future expectations based on past performance, if he trusts his wife, guess what she does? She needs to be able to trust her husband. And you're not going to get trust in your home if you yourself are untrustworthy. Not going to happen. Because this person who constantly is trustworthy while you are not trustworthy, do you think that eventually that that rock's going to get wore out? You bet it is. Okay. So this husband, his greatest quality, and I'm going to demonstrate this within the context of Proverbs 31, is that he figures out how to commit himself and his wife to a relationship between them of building trust. 
Now, here's an interesting thing. Whether you're talking about marriage, a family, a business, or a congregation of people, when trust goes up, the cost of maintenance goes down. Okay? Always. Because what happens is everybody's able to focus on productivity. They're able to focus on doing their part, the division of labor and getting things accomplished because they trust what's going on. But when trust starts to go out the door, what happens to the cost of maintaining that marriage, that relationship with the kids, or the congregation? You start having trust breakdown. The cost starts rising. Because what happens at that point in time is everybody goes to their turf and they want to protect themselves. Or if you're within a business, what happens is they've become concerned that the ethical standard, i.e. the politics that governs that, has become skewered and dishonest. Now the reason they perceive that is because it's become skewered and dishonest. They're not making a bad perception. Here. When my wife doesn't trust me, do you think she does things to safeguard herself from my actions? <laughs> you bet. Why? Because she's smart. Okay? That's why she does it. That's true in any set of circumstances. So, if we can cultivate trust in that relationship, then what happens is our household is going to be productive. Let me ask you a question. If you open up the Bible to Proverbs 31, am I looking at a productive household? Which means what about the trust factor going on within that home? It's way up there, right? In fact, that trust factor is so good until the wife is out functioning, she considers a field, she buys it. Why is she doing that? So that she can be more productive because you notice all the kids. She is training her children along with her husband to serve the poor in the community. And they have plenty of food. They're producing, they're productive people so that they have enough to bless all of those around them and they're, they're taking care of these needs. That only happens in the context of trust, that people are this productive. So you young men, I cannot encourage you enough to understand this, that your future wife's expectations of you are going to be based on the performance that you actually exhibit in your behavior before her. The single most common factor in the counseling that we do with in marriage counseling is where the husband violates the sixth commandment within marriage. The sixth commandment is, Thou shalt not kill. How in the world does he do? Isn't that a crime? Here it is. The scripture says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, if you understand the commandment, there are two sides to the commandment, right? One of them is the negative, the other is the positive. 
Thou shalt not kill or murder, which this opposite side, thou shalt preserve life. So with our tongues, we have the potential to kill. Words wound. And particularly with our wives and our children. And we bring death into it. The Scripture says in that same chapter that a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. Should I work on the framework for how I'm going to speak to my wife? Absolutely. And the things I'm not going to say. Now, brethren, I can tell you that I was married long before I was 35. And there are some really embarrassing things. Uh, God would go so far as to call them sinful. Really sinful. In terms of my relationship with my wife. I violated the sixth commandment. Uh, and, and you know, as I spoke that death into my family, I begin to see it die. That's really shocking, isn't it? And God had to work, change me, so that I no longer did that. It's the most common, that is the single most common thing that we see with men in counseling. And you know, one of the things I discovered as the Lord began to teach me this, it was amazing the things I would say to my wife I'd never say to God. Now, Brother Daniel and I were talking about this this morning. And in my relationship, here's what I had. That there was this brother, he kept teaching about the fact that there's no such thing as a personal relationship. And I just couldn't grip, put, get my hand around that. And his point was this, every relationship that we have is covenantal in nature. For instance, am I free to choose how I'm going to interact with my wife on the basis of she and I? No. Why? Because has God commanded how the husband is to treat his wife? So it's not a matter of me reacting to my wife, it's a matter of me reacting to the one who commands me. I react to God. You know how many times that has been a buffer on my sinful proclivities? And then when I respond to God's commands, Tim Yarborough, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And gave himself for her. Tim Yarborough, love your wife and be not bitter against her. Tim Yarborough, dwell with your wife with understanding. Now my wife's not the one commanding that, is she? That's the Lord Himself. And what I discovered is, is that the more obedient I become to what God commands me and I respond to God's commands, my wife becomes the benefactor of that. And she then begins to respond to the Lord instead of to me, which is a really good thing. Right? Because responding to other human beings, we, <clears throat> we sometimes put way too much weight on them uh, about satisfying us. So if, if my wife can satisfy the Lord, I can only assure you that I'm satisfied with that human relationship. So, 
I want to give you some, some examples from Scriptures and talk about this as a lifestyle. And brethren, I, I cannot emphasize to you too much. Like, if you have, like, uh, there was a young man here last year. He's not here anymore. I, and I worked with him a fairly good little bit after I left. And he has some pretty severe damaged relationships with his, his parents. Okay? And that's not uncommon in the history of the world. Okay, so the question is, once God brought it to your attention, it's not like God hadn't brought it to his attention. He was just unwilling to put it within the context of who was responsible to set it right. And, and, and so I said, okay, so let's talk about this. And, and, and I said, okay, so, you know, what you're descri describing is, is that your parents did not trust you. Why? Because your past behavior created their future expectations and you resented that she had, they had a standard by which they judged you. Right? And they were accurate. Now that's generally the troubling part, right? <laughs> For all of us. I said, okay, so you've got to make a choice here about what you're going to do. You're either going to assume responsibility and you're going to deal with it on the basis of what God commands you to do, or you're going to bury it under a rug and let it be a burr in your saddle for the rest of your life. But I can assure you that it's going to remain sore. It's going to remain... This is not how God has for us to resolve problems. So now, let me warn you. If you go back to your parents and you set things right, which is what you ought to do if you're going to be obedient to God, your parents, if they are wise, are going to be skeptical about you. It's the way it works. And you're going to have to be willing to build a different past in order to change what? Future expectations. And if you're not willing to build that different past, I'll tell you what you don't want. You don't want God's standard of the future expectations. You want magic. Okay. So, needless to say, I was very thankful when I got a call later fall. And uh, this young man said, I just have to tell you what's happened. I said, okay, I'm all ears. You've got me. I'm hooked. So, and he shared with me what, what, what transpired. And, and he said, right, and, and, and the trust relationship started doing this. I said, remember, you are the one that needs to be faithful for a long period of time. That's on you. And he did. So there, there's all these, these types of relationships that we may need to mend, we need mend, but we need a standard by which we can judge them, right? And we need a standard that others have by which they judge us. Now, it's also possible that you can misjudge people. Um, <clears throat> even, in the, in, even in that context, but uh, again, if you have people who are distant and people who are close, that's different. It's, it's a whole different ballgame. I have gone through companies and given them a list of individuals that they needed to fire. And I typically do my contracts like this. I will do a two-stage contract. One will be my evaluation. And two 
will be implementation, but I don't allow the contracts to be molded together. Because once I do the evaluation, if they're unwilling to do what needs to be done, is it possible for me to win on the other side? No, but guess who will get the blame for it failing? Yeah, I'll just sign right up for that thing. Now, I did not get that lesson for free, guys. <laughs> just so you know. All right. Let's read some scriptures and listen to them. Okay. Proverbs eleven thirteen: 13, A talebearer reveals secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit conceals the matter. How do you know if a person is a talebearer? Yeah, they reveal secrets, don't they? When I hear that, is God trying to educate me? Yeah, He is. But he that is of a faithful spirit conceals the matter. Can I kind of peg those people? It takes a long time because... They keep concealing matters. We had a conversation with a gentleman yesterday that was an epitome of that principle. While we were driving down the road and we were having a conversation, I was listening to this man and this scripture was on my mind. This man was a faithful man and there were things that he concealed. And it was very obvious that he was doing so and it was a matter of principle with him. I was like, man, what an example of this stuff. This is a living example. Proverbs 13 and 17. A wicked messenger falls into mischief, but a faithful ambassador is health. How do you know a wicked messenger? He always creates mischief. It's always controversy. But a faithful ambassador brings health to what he's doing. Now, there are some other scriptures here that I will, uh, that I, I, these are typically the ones that I use, and I'll come back and pick up some of these others. Uh, the scripture says that uh, Proverbs 10, 26, as vinegar to the teeth and as smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to them that send him. Let's follow the logic. So is the sluggard to those that send him. Now, did you know before you sent him under the application here that this person was a sluggard? Yeah. So is the sluggard to them that send him. They sent the sluggard. How did they know he was a sluggard? Past performance. And they sent him knowing this. And the scripture says that that's like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. It's real irritating, isn't it? Now, God says to him, I give you the evidence that this is a sluggard and you send him anyway. So what you should expect is irritation. Guess what I get? I get irritation. Now, what we're sometimes afraid of doing is looking someone in the face and saying, John... 
I have had an opportunity to observe you now for a month, if it's on the job, or maybe it's uh, one of some of the young men. Like we have a young man in our neighborhood. I had to have this conversation with him. He's part of our, uh, was a part of our congregation. I sat down and I said, I, I want to just tell you like it is, I don't trust you. And I don't trust you because you're a sluggard. And the people around you have come to have such low expectations of your character because you have trained them that way. Now, as you can imagine, he just hugged my neck and loved me, and <laughs> right? <laughs> but the reality is, is that out of that whole Christian community, nobody had sat down with that young man, looked him in the eye, and told him what God's judgment of him was. Now, there are three, three things that a sluggard does in the Scriptures, and I'll let you look those up, at least three that we've been able to find. If these are in your life, did God give that evidence so people could properly identify you? Well, He did. Now, that young man was really upset. And I said, I, you know, you can get angry with me. You can be upset with me. I am going to love you, but I am not going to make excuses for you. I am to be the older man in your life. I am to be sober. I am to be vigilant. I am to be faithful to you. It's not because I set that standard for myself. God gave it to me. Well, it was about three months later he came back to me. And we had a conversation about that and his repentance. So what do you say to this young man now? Well, Joe, it's not his real name. Okay, Joe, you recognize the fault of this. Now, here are the people you've got to go make this right with. Now, Joe, let me tell you something. Going and snotting and crying and all that is going to be great and good. Get off. But if you don't change your behavior, all they're going to do is see you as a hypocrite for this reason. You are. You must change your behavior if you're going to change those future expectations. That's the way it works. Okay. Well, so far, it's done a great job. Uh, in, the, in the Scriptures, uh, Proverbs 25 and 19. This is one of my favorite. Now, as you think about this principle, as you read the Word of God, you're going to see this over and over and over again in relationships. Now, a lot of people are very uncomfortable with this presentation. You know why? Yeah, it, it comes very close to home, doesn't it? We're all sitting here and we're evaluating ourselves. And should we be doing that? Yeah. We should be doing that. Because God is going to deal with us on the basis of these things. Proverbs 25, 19. Confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble, it's like a broken foot and a broken tooth. Let's follow the logic. Confidence, the word there actually means trust. Trust in an unfaithful man. How did you know that? Past performance. In a time of trouble. Well, let's just tighten it because this is how we find out what you and I actually believe. 
Right? So the pressure in life is increased, and I have this person who I know is unfaithful, and now I'm going to repose confidence in them. Now, confidence is not just an emotion. It's not just a thought. It's an actual behavior. Which means I'm going to assign this person to do something who is unfaithful, I know it, and I feel the pressure. And God says, Tim, confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble is like a broken foot and a broken tooth. You go ahead and do that, and what you should expect is pain. Right? Just It's going to hurt you. And is that what happens? Only ten times out of ten. And here's why. Confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble is like a broken tooth or a broken foot or a broken tooth. It's because you see, you and I, under those kinds of circumstances, like to excuse ourselves. God's given us all this evidence to say that this is an unfaithful person. We repose confidence in them because there's this pressure, and what you and I are after is the religion of magic. Tomorrow morning, we want things to be different than they have ever been before. Now, the question is, is that God's way? It is not. So we have to sit down and have this conversation, and we have to say, Joe, I cannot send you on this mission, though it's critical. And the reason, Joe, I can't do that is because you are not faithful. Now, Joe is just going to love you. He's going to appreciate that. He's going to thank you for it. Probably not at first. But if you continue on with Joe in that fashion or yourself, have you done him any favors? No. You have learned or you're teaching him how to be enabled by your own deficiencies of character. That kind of makes us responsible, doesn't it, to our, what we can do. Here's another one. <clears throat> he that sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off the feet and drinks damage. Pretty blunt, isn't it? But you have a person who's a fool. And you send a message by the fool, and God said, it's like cutting off your feet and drinking damage to your life. Is there in all of this a warning for us to have standards of behavioral conduct? Absolutely, for ourselves and for others. And then we have uh, this one, which is really good. As the cold of snow in the time of harvest, so is a faithful messenger to them that send him. For he refreshes the soul of his masters. So they send him, what did they know about this guy? His history demonstrates he's one of faithfulness, doesn't it? And so we send this faithful person... And the effect of sending faithful people is that it refreshes the souls of those around them. What an incredible thing. Now, what should that cause to go on inside of us, in our hearts and our minds? Lord, 
make me that kind of a faithful messenger. I want Brother Kevin to be able to depend on me or the people that I work with to be able to depend on me irrespective of what anybody else does. The minute that you and I begin to respond on the basis of what other people do, we have just invited distrust into our lives. Because we're going to start emulating that, right? We're going to take secondary causes and make them primary. But why would we not as Christians want to be known as faithful messengers? What a testimony Joseph had, right? I mean, could you imagine the resumes that you, you know, if I, if I got a hold of Potiphar and the prison guard and Pharaoh and said, give me some letters of reference on this guy. You think they'd be pretty good? Yeah, because of who he was. So, when you're dealing with these things, these are principles that operate across the board. Proverbs 22 and 10 says, Cast out the scorner, and contention shall go out. Yea, strife and reproach shall cease. So let's ask the question, cast out the scorner. How did you know this is a scorner? Past performance. Did you know that in the Scriptures that is the only remedy God gives for dealing with scorners? I, I haven't been able to find another one in asking other brothers. Cast out the scorner. Have you ever been in a classroom where you had a scorner, a bully, or something like that? And they're, they just disrupt everything, don't they? And you get rid of that guy. And what happens to the classroom? Huh, yeah, it becomes like restoring of order. Okay? But the key was to get rid of him. Cast him out. We go through this. This is our principle in employment. If you are a scorner, I promise you, my hand on the Bible, I will fire you. No questions asked. Uh, and no, I'm not going to try to get to relate to your feelings. I'm going to fire you. That is the standard. So the force of law will either be compelled by conscience or it will be compelled by coercion. Okay? Now, I've had people say, that's awfully mean, Tim. I said, you mean mean to all the other employees? And they're like, no, 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 to that person. I said, oh, I get it. So the other ten employees should have to suffer because of the jerk. Okay. Now, we as Christians, a lot of times we're uncomfortable with the fact that human behavior is depraved and God gives us ways of dealing with it. Now, obviously, we'd like for them to be converted to Christ, right? But my workplace is not the place for that to occur. Now, we, we do share the gospel, we do practice things, but I'm not going to leave that influence there to leaven that culture. I'm going to get rid of it. And I'll take him out to eat. I will share the gospel with him. I will help any way I can, but what I will not do is allow them to continue that influence to leaven the culture around us. Okay? So... <clears throat> Do you think that the other employees would appreciate that? Yeah. 
in my area, we have a uh, one private Christian school. Did you know that the primary purpose of that Christian school is to take the rejects from the government schools? And guess what happens with the kids that they couldn't control in the public school when they come into that school? They disrupt the entire environment. And you know why that one private school does that? Because they need the money. And so they're willing to sacrifice all of these other kids for the sake of that one tuition. Do you think they have a priority problem? Yeah. They do. Okay, so trust is future expectations based on past performance. I want my wife my children, the people I work with, to have a future expectation of me that is built on trustworthiness. I want them to be able to know that if I violate that trust, I'm going to set it right. Now, when I do marriage ceremonies, uh, for some of you young men, uh, you're going to be taking covenants, right? You're going to be taking vows and oaths. So one of the things I always tell them, I said, you know, the you're about to take a vow. So before you take that vow, let me explain to you that you're going to violate it. All you married men, is that true? Yeah. I know of no exceptions to that. Okay. And so the vows are wonderful and good so long as they constitute the force of law that you will submit to as a matter of conscience, because if you don't, one thing you can count on. It will be compelled by coercion and possibly violence. Okay, It doesn't change just because it's the law of the household. Principle is the same. Brethren who are married, am I right? Okay, It's not like I created any insights to this. It's the way it works. Okay, God designed this. I cannot tell you, brethren, how deeply this issue impacts life. And as you think on this more and more, if you go back to Proverbs 31, remember that man? And he had developed this relationship with his wife and that had spread through his household. What I didn't do was follow through with the last two steps, and I'm going to do that in closing. Verse 28 says... Her children rise up and call her blessed, semicolon, her husband also, and he praises her. Now, in the Hebrew, that's important. That semicolon tells you, I'm about to explain to you what I just told you. Her children rise up and call her blessed. I'm 62. I have never been around a woman that trained her children to rise up and call her blessed. But I'm going to explain to you what I just told you. Her husband also, and he praises her. Guess where the kids got it from? Dad was inculcating this principle of trust in the lives of his children by modeling before them how to honor mom. And he did it in word, and he did it in deed. And those children picked up on it. And so then you see this just this explosion within the household of productivity. And then it finally says in verse 23, 
then he shall be known when he sits with the elders in the gates. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have men who are capable of developing this within the context of the home? Because, I mean, still, you've got to deal with, the, with people who have, you know, depraved human natures, right? And, and God, hopefully, the Lord converts those natures and you, you're working with a different dynamic. But wouldn't it be wonderful to have men whose influence at a larger level understood the application of those principles well enough that he had them working out in his home and it was being demonstrated? Well, Brother Nefzaz, think on this issue. You're not going to avoid it. I want other people to trust me because I'm trustworthy. And in your work environments, in your congregational, in your community, it doesn't matter what other people do. Don't get into that. You can't win it. But I am going to be responsible whether anybody else does or not to be trustworthy. Okay? Father, you have commanded us to examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith. And the reality is we're totally unqualified for that task that you've commanded us to do. And this is why the psalmist cried out, Search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. Keep me back also from presumptuous sins, that they not have dominion over me. Lord, I pray for me and my brothers that we would so faithfully pursue under every circumstance being people of trust, that that would be the testimony in the circles of influence that know us that we are trustworthy people because of the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. In His name, Amen.